All right, guys, we're in I, I'm sorry, yeah. Ezekiel 8, Ezekiel, Ecclesiastes, I'm having a rough morning, sorry about that, and if you want to turn to that, we're going to go, starting from verse 1, um, who is like the wise, who knows the interpretation of a thing, a man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is shame, um, I want to pause there, and skip to verse 9 which reads, All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. All right, so that bookends what's coming here in the middle, and we'll pick back up verse 2. I say, that, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your sin in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, or who can tell him how it will be. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is under the sun, done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Uh, that's Ecclesiastes 8, verses 1 through 9. The vast majority of the commentators believe that this is somewhat of a stoic rendition of how to live under a tyrannical king. Martin actually has a, a uh, <clears throat> study on this where he basically just talks about despotism and sort of you have a stoic response to bad government. Um, I'm taking along with uh, Leopold a the minority view, which is that this passage is not talking about an earthly king, but it's talking about how to deal with oppression in light of God's radical sovereignty, the king, the heavenly king, not a earthly king. You can read it in a sense of let's just be sort of pragmatic of, hey, don't get yourself in trouble. You know, don't hold up, don't take a selfie at January 6th in the Capitol building. And, uh, you know, don't irritate a government that doesn't, that frowns upon your action. I mean, we've seen this in, in our own last couple of years. Of, uh, I just saw a friend of mine was complaining that Facebook took down something he did and, and lacked his account, and he doesn't know why. He doesn't know, he doesn't know what to appeal, he doesn't know what to do. Um, <clears throat> and so... You could look at that and say, well, the Bible's saying don't, you know, they can do whatever they want. And so it, it's that. But the problem with it is, is, is there's several. First and foremost, the beginning of this talks about wisdom and the interpretation and analysis of a thing, which goes back to look at Romans 1. Because of the futility of our thinking, because we're refusing to acknowledge God, keep him first and foremost, primary in our minds. Right? Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Don't lean on your own understanding. But in all of your ways, consider God and his word preeminent in everything. He's the first presupposition in everything, and he'll make straight your path. So <clears throat> Romans, Romans uh, 12, the renewal of our mind comes from us exchanging, as Cornelius Van Til would put it, the, the atomic nature of our mind, the, the principle of Adam, of autonomy, and over against the principle of Christ. Okay, so... We're often very fickle, right? We're all, all too easily disturbed of our circumstances, and they can blow us about. But what 
what we have in wisdom is the knowledge of God's sovereignty, his radical covenant sovereignty, that he has made covenant with us that if we follow him in faith, that all will be well. And, and so there's an old way of teaching, and, and you say, well, tell them what you can tell them. Tell them, and then tell them that you told them. And Toheleth is doing that here. He keeps telling us, hey, God is sovereign. Times and seasons for everything. Wisdom is wrestling in the knowledge that God is absolutely sovereign. And he's absolutely good. And he's going to bring all things, into, all things into judgment. So if you're going through a tough spot, if you are being oppressed, and uh, you are suffering, and you're under the power of tyrannical institutions, you're under the power of tyrannical men, not just, not just the federal government, not just the king, not just what, but bad bosses or what have you. The Lord has a time for judgment. That would make sense of the passage because it bookends those two things. So he's not just going into pragmatics. Um, he's not just saying, okay, don't get in a fight with the king. Um, so again, this is a minority view of this, but I do think it makes sense. It also makes sense of what Jesus says to Pilate. You'd have no authority over me, plus it was given to you from above. Right? If you read it from a pragmatic, the king can do whatever, and that's what the Bible is just saying, oh, what can we do? And that is a common fallacy today. That, that really is out there, the myth of neutrality, that Jesus Christ says in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. And the, and the humanistic international version reads, all authority has been given to me, except during the week in Washington, except in the town square, except in court. Do you realize that, that if you, we don't have to have an education system that directly lies. We could just have it that omits certain truth. For example, you weren't allowed to testify in court unless you were a believer in Jesus Christ. In early America, you were prohibited from testifying. Is that what's your standard of truth? <coughs> huh? That's gone. Nobody even knows that anymore. Okay? Counties had more power than states. States had more power than the, the federal government because it was localism. It was localism. It wasn't. Where did they get that from? Scripture. So, in this case, we're reading this is that there's no brute facts because all facts are in accordance with the plan of God. And so everybody's under the Lord. So this is not a discourse on a civil magistrate being able to do whatever he wants. That would do violence to Romans 13. That's a civil magistrate is God's. He is God's minister for his justice, not man's justice. Nothing is more profane than saying, we have to have a separation of church and state to, so that President Joe Biden or whomever is president is going to protect unbelievers from Jesus Christ. What a violent thing it is to say to that. When I say violence, I, and I literally mean that because mankind's history is right, red in tooth and claw. Only the Prince of Peace brings real peace. So with that being said, Romans 12 tells us to achieve the renewed mind. That is the mind of Christ as opposed to the fallen worldly mind. And it sets its thinking on the principles of Scripture. It tests everything according to that truth rather than just letting it just be done for us. Right? The principle of Adam is the old perspective of there's truth out there, there's God, there's us. Right? The Bible tells you there is no truth outside of God. No. no. It's got by God's grace that unbelievers don't completely, catastrophically kill themselves and other people right away. That's the Bible's clear message. So we test everything according to that, and we get rid of the humanistic lens through the bits and pieces, as Francis Schaeffer would say, the bits and pieces method of thinking is the default human setting. 
the principle of Christ is to see all things in faith. All things are under his care. Remember Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, keeping him first and foremost in us. So the, the old mind is foolish in that it insists on seeing life's affairs according to its own standards. It rejects humility and logic and insists on looking at life from the humanistic perspective. Why logic? Because the minute somebody says, well, you can't bring Christianity into that, you're saying, well, what are we bringing into it? Scientific materialism, we're all just bags of gas blowing around, then what do we care? Who cares? Right? What do we need a Harvard for? Why don't we need a West Point? We need, we need schools of arms. If it's, just, if it's just survival of the fittest, if you are a Darwinist, now think about this. The humanistic perspective of, let's say, Darwinism never can or should dare to follow through their presuppositions in action. Cannot do it. Imagine me saying that. This is survival of the fittest. So if you start showing some weakness, we should just off you. You're holding back evolution. That's the ethic of Darwinism. Adolf Hitler wasn't crazy. He was a, he was a consistent Darwinism. He had some, he had some dust-ups with guys like Stalin over which group of people were the fittest. That was what the argument was. It was easy to say he was just crazy. He was trying to be a logically consistent Darwinist. Logically consistent Christians realize that all people are created in the image of God and only God has ultimate, ultimate authority. And no human being has the power to say, this is right and wrong, unless they appeal to the word of the Lord. So what we're always striving for is to become happy fundamentalists. We all, all hear the thing of, that person's an ideologue. You know where they slander the, the idea of taking <clears throat> ideas seriously? Gordon Clark said, all practice is the practice of a theory. What's your theory? Christian theories, there it is. What do you believe? Act it out. The proof that Christianity is true is you can't act out anything logically without ending in murder. <laughs> All who hate me love death, Proverbs 8.36. So, so a question arises uh, with the question of the oath. Obey the king since you vowed to God that you would. Uh, now Barton in the Reflections on Despotism uh, says that you take an oath to the king. But Leopold answers that and says there's nothing grammatically there to prevent construing this term as referring to an oath that is rendered to God. Not an oath in God's name, but the oath to God to obey his commandments. Uh, he points out Genesis 24, 8. We don't have time to go through all of that. Deuteronomy 29, 12. Joshua 2, 17 is oaths rendered to God. Incidentally, if you look at 1 Samuel 8, the Bible's very clear that the desire for Israel's desire for a king was contrary to God's will. There was supposed to be a nation of justice, uh, judges where, of course, God is the king. So, so the idea here in play is that we have to be able to analyze this and interpret it, which is the front bookend of verse 1. So that's the context of the passage, right? And the wisdom tells us that refusal to keep God's commandments is effectively saying that God hasn't kept his part of the covenant, so we'll neglect ours in days of trouble. Um, wisdom tells us that even if God doesn't do, it doesn't deliver us immediately from trouble and struggle, as we prefer him to do, that we will still cheerfully obey him. Now, I think everybody sitting here would prefer that God would answer certain things right away. You know, we just heard this morning about you know, how, fast, how fast God answers certain things. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, man, 
Imagine she's calling down fire on that. That's pretty cool. Uh, and it pleased him to do that at that moment. It pleases him now to give us his word. It pleases him now to give us his word and us to be filled with the Spirit. And we are declaring war on Canaan right now, the unbelieving world, and our weapon is the word of the Lord. That is what we're ordained to do. And uh, we are not ordained to, to knock down the walls of Jericho, literally. We are knocking them down, tearing down strongholds. Paul's language in Second Corinthians is that we're knocking down those walls and tearing down those strongholds, obliterating those ideas, eviscerating them. Yeah, war language with the truth of the gospel. They cannot stand against Christ. Um, but <clears throat> no sword, no literal sword, and no force. Um, so... Wisdom tells us that even if he won't deliver us directly from trouble, we obey him anyway. And cheerfully. Verse 3 says, Be not hasty to go from his presence. Don't take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. Now, this is a strong argument against the preacher meaning an earthly king. Because of the problem of this, back in the, the Oriental kings, the ancient kings, you weren't going to saunter into the king's court. There is a strict etiquette. Anybody ever seen like how to get in the... Uh, in front of King George during the Revolutionary War time, they had a very strict, or King Louis, you had, you had a very strict set of protocols on how you were going to go in there. You can't just... It, I'm in the martial arts field, and there's this, the Japanese are much more strict than the Chinese, uh, you know, culturally, with the way they pass martial arts down. If the instructor sits down, you can sit down. If you sit down before the instructor sits down, it, when I started in the 80s, you'd get beat up for that. Yeah, beat up for that. I was out with my martial arts team in, in December of 2010 in L.A. doing, doing some stuff, and uh, the grandmaster of the system contacts us and tells us he wants us to drive to Phoenix, Arizona to, uh, to rebuke a fallen... They, the Chinese of it is that basically it's called a treacherous disciple. The grandmaster said, this guy shouldn't be teaching, he's doing something wrong, yet I, I'm, I wasn't on that. I, that was above my pay grade to find out what happened. But he wanted us to go out there and shut him down. A treacherous disciple is dealt with by crippling him. You break both of his legs. When we alerted the grandmaster who was in China that we can't do that in America. <laughs> yeah. He was a little bit, let's say, perturbed. How do you enforce code over there? And I remember seeing him. Oh, you're going to sue. You're going to sue. You people are a falling people. That's what he said. That's what the China, you can criticize your government, you can't do anything else. Our government lets us do whatever we want as long as we don't criticize the government. I'm going, that's the earthly king? This is crazy stuff, you know? So you think about, that's strong etiquette. You're not going to tell the grandmaster, that's a grandmaster of a martial arts system. You're not telling him no without serious physical consequences. You think you're going to walk in front of the king? It's right here, and say, don't be hasty to go from his presence. Can you imagine walking into the king's court and turning your back on him? You're not getting out of there with your head. So this is talking, don't apostatize. Don't go outside of the Lord's will. Don't be hasty when things <coughs> aren't going your way to go and really commit adultery by embracing worldly ideas. So Genesis 4.16 talks about how Cain, what did he do? He left the presence of Jehovah. The language is very rich with the way the covenant people of Israel would have understood what he's saying. 
We're, it's, this is a little harder for us, you know, being Gentile believers a couple thousand years later, we're hearing this in bits and pieces. So the point in play, don't be hasty to reject your allegiance to the Almighty when he doesn't grant you immediate relief from some trouble or another. Um, think that whatever he does, he does whatever he pleases. That sounds like a threat, doesn't it? That sounds like a tyrannical threat from, I'll do whatever I want. But the Lord is good and sovereign, and he does whatever is pleasing because it is good, including having Jesus Christ die for our sins. That didn't look good at the time, did it? That didn't look good at the time. And you can imagine the trauma that the disciples felt and that we feel in smaller ways, the echoes of that, when we cannot figure out what is going on. As we watch the name of God blasphemed, we watch... We watch this world turn from and embrace greater and greater sin and criticize and call evil what is good and call good evil. It's to our everlasting benefit to admit that we just don't know enough to tell God what to do. Who's going to walk into God's court and give him the what for? Hey, what are you doing? Um, which is it for the verse four, for the word of the king is supreme and who may say to him, what are you doing? I love, this is one of my favorite verses. One of my favorite verses. Can you imagine? I mean, we, we wouldn't do that with, we couldn't walk into the White House and just walk in. Could we? I mean, think about this when you're talking about an earthly king. So this can't be a common thing. You can just walk in and just talk to the king. How many of us go in prayer and kind of give God to what for? Or get mad, don't pray because we're irritated. We sulk. My sister, my oldest sister, was a black belt sulker. When she didn't get her way, this teenage girl could give you this look that was almost a weapon. I remember seeing and thinking, that woman is mad. And she would cross her arms. And she would shoot daggers. Nobody understands me. Nobody cares. You always love Jay more than me. That's what she would say. I'm just sitting there reading a comic book, minding my own business, and I got thrown under the bus. And then she would stomp off to her bedroom and slam the door. And you would hear a thing slamming just in case she forgot five minutes later that she was still mad. That's what she would do. I'd like to say that I never got in trouble like that because I didn't anger the king, which was my dad. (laughs) I could tell that guy's moods when he came in the house and I would be like, he's in a bad mood. I'm going to make myself scarce. So I'm not the brightest guy in the world, but I didn't go up to dad and go, what are you doing? So there was a practical aspect to that. I wouldn't do it. I remember my mom and dad were looking at car things in 1980. And I said, you know what? Car is really cool. And I got this. You have a job. I'm 10. No job, no opinion. I took that as a good cue to exit stage left. Wisdom. But what would we do to the Lord? When we're mad, we won't pray. Stop into our room, go to a little <clears throat> corner, try to push the Holy Spirit into a corner of our heart and say, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to read the Bible. I'm angry. This isn't working the way it ought to work. Um, and we all have done that. And he welcomes us back. He comes looking for us. Sometimes he breaks our heart exquisitely as only he can. And there's a beauty to it. It's never... There's never rage and wrath for his people, for his children. It's always love. It's always beauty. It's always perfection. Just like last week, 
He does all things well. He does all things well. <clears throat> so, all authority on earth is given to Christ, right? But the word of the king is supreme. And who are you going to say? Well, what are you doing? I don't know enough to say what are you doing. How did that work for Job? Anytime this whole passage of context, don't put God in the dock. Praise him, adore him, beseech him. Lord, I don't know what's going on. I'm like a brute. I have no idea. Um, faith is therefore the comprehensive trust in his righteous character, his complete love, his perfect love. Not the way this world loves, not the way it talks about love, but real love, God's love. And his authority. Naturally, because we're in a sinful world, authority makes us a little nervous. That's why I said the founding fathers were much more focused on localism, because they knew what people would do when they got more power. The EPA and the organizations that you were just speaking about, they, they lord it over you. So the question God's law word is the supreme act of irrationality. Because in order to question him, we've got to have a standard, and that standard's him. Until would say it's like crawling into daddy's lap to slap him. He lifts you up and you slap him. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing and a wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Who can say that but God? You keep my command, no evil thing will hit you. That's not an earthly king. All things will work together for our good who love God in Christ Jesus. That is only God who can say that. Um, and that's a, another reason why this passage is best interpreted as obedience to our heavenly king with the sub-authorities running in the background. Like I said, with my father or the, the governor or the mayor, um, you know, it doesn't behoove us to just go off and, and be rebellious in any way, shape, or form. But, but that's pragmatics. Again, I'm not saying that that is irrelevant, but we're saying that the gist of it and the only way it makes sense is in the full context of Scripture. The wise understand that there are times and seasons. They wait on him and know that he will bring all things into judgment, both the defense of the righteous and the rebuke of the wicked. <clears throat> it will absolutely come to pass. It will absolutely come to pass. The wicked will be judged. They will be rebuked. And you will know it. You will know it. This is the principle that unifies our paragraph. It instructs us as to how, to, how the wise face suffering and frustration. The proper time and just way, right here, presuppose our Heavenly Father's sovereign control. Um, <clears throat> for there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. This is a clunky rendition as it comes into English. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? The trouble of evil men lies um, heavy on the righteous. The way of saying this. Evil men are not happy people because they don't have a sovereign God that's good. Life is terrifying. Reagan's former speechwriter, Peggy Noonan, said something one time that I think is instructive here. She said that all, young, all children, especially young men, paraphrasing Aristotle, that they need unconditional love and loving discipline both. If they don't get them, the children are terrified. Life is terrifying. Then it turns to rage. As they turn into teen years, you wonder why you see teenagers running around attacking people in packs and gangs and so forth. Why? Life is terrifying. There is no ultimate truth. There is no heavenly father who loves you. You're alone in this dark, horrible, 
senseless world. The only thing that matters now is sensual pleasure and pure raw power. And if you've got it, go ahead and abuse it. That's the logic of it. And so the trouble of evil men lies heavy on the righteous. Think of the way, if you've watched especially dramas on politics or you like to watch the news, you see how politicians are, what's legal? Why do you think our, our legal contracts, when I first went into business, my, my lease was a one-page thing. Do you agree to pay me X on X date? Yeah. <laughs> I was it. Then about, when I went up a notch, I remember getting a uh, lease and uh, it was 36 pages. And now I'm pretty good at reading some stuff that's a little bit difficult. But man, I couldn't figure that thing out at all. It's all in English. And I'm looking at this and going, I'm not, I'm not sure what he's talking about. I'm not sure what the lease is talking about. So I gave it to my lawyer at the time. He, a buddy of mine, he's like, gives it, he looks at this and he's sitting there. He's like, well, this, this is you're waiving your exemptions. I'm like, my exemptions? What's that? Well, in South Carolina, if you go belly up, you have $50,000. You probably all know this. The lawyers do. I had no idea. Like the last of America, I was like walking around. And so he explains all this stuff to me and he points it out, what's going on? I'm like, this is horrible. That's, that's offensive. That's the way they do business. If you're dumb enough to sign it, they'll take it. Why? Because they can. It's just raw power. They're not doing it with a sword. They're not doing it with a gun. They're doing it with a briefcase. So the heavy... The heaviness of that fear is on the evil people and they're oppressing the righteous. And this moves God to pity and to act. This is the hope of the faithful. The unbeliever doesn't know this, however. He's ignorant of the fact that God will one day settle all accounts. And this makes him think, right? This makes people think that we're like sheep to be slaughtered, that they're getting away with it. There's going to be no judgment. And, uh, they presume on God's kindness and forbearance, not knowing God's kindness and forbearance are meant to lead them to repentance. But because of their hard and impenitent hearts, Romans 2, 4, they're storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. We've always got those. We stay humble before the Lord, but we also avoid despair because we know God is going to judge evil. So, um, no man has power to retain the spirit, the power of the day of death. There is no discharge from war. This has been quoted a lot, just so you, you can get trapped. Have you seen politicians and people with money avoid the draft? The Civil War, same thing. It was just buying off the draft. Some of the poor immigrants coming into Ellis Island, welcome to America. Here's a very heavy blue suit. We're going to send you to a hot, hot place down south to get shot at by guys in a gray suit. <laughs> Good luck. Meanwhile, if you had any money, you could pay off the draft board. No discharge from war? That's not what the point is. The point is, no discharge from the war you declare on God. Leopold talks about how they're going to be stunned when judgment hits because they have declared war on God. What did, what did Jesus say to Saul? Why do you persecute me? You realize that all things done evil to you, insofar as you're righteous, I'm not talking you're holding up a local store here. That's, that's, that's crime. We're talking about when you suffer for Christ's name and you suffer in Christ, you realize that, that, that who's ever forcing that suffering on you has declared war on Jesus Christ himself. And he will, he will make right that wrong. There will be no discharge from that war. There will be nowhere to hide. Nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. They think they're going to get some kind of a legal out. 
They think they're going to get a Johnny Cochran that's going to get them off in the last day. They think there's some argument they can make. There's not. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. The whole context of this passage is, are you suffering? Are you sitting there like Lot in torment over all the evil that you see? Think of, think of one other thing, but no discharge from war. Think of Robert E. Lee's being a Christian man, his response to loss, clear defeat, and Adolf Hitler or Imperial Japan. If you were a German citizen and you see the Soviet army marching in, and you're thinking, you're looking over your shoulder at your so-called leaders going, um, I think we need to make terms of peace. This is going badly for us. Can we, can we get a truce? Can we get a truce? I'm going to get a truce. Robert E. Lee goes, hey, I really firmly believe in this cause, but we lost. And his generals came to him and said, we can take this battle to the hills. We've got horses and guns, and we can battle it out for another generation. And Robert E. Lee said, we lost, gentlemen. And we have a sacred duty to surrender so that there will be peace in the land. And we'll pray to the Lord that if our cause was just, he will make it so. See, in real time, real theology has real consequences. Adolf Hitler thought there was nothing but, <clears throat> Imperial Japan thought there was nothing but right now. So they'll go down with the ship and they'll take you with them. That's the context here. If you are suffering with this, we're going to go one last thing really quick. Romans, not Romans, I did it again. Ezekiel. Psalm, not even close, starts with a P73. Um, where <clears throat> Asaph is, is He's troubled. He says that for they have no pangs until death. Talking about the, in, uh, the arrogant and the evil. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. If you ever sit and read any social... Um, media. I, a friend of mine, AJ, he's got an uh, online ministry. There's a church down in Lawrence County, and he, uh, he has a bunch of things that he puts on, on social media, uh, some short Bible lessons he chops up. Well, I've seen a few comments getting in there, some of the atheists, and, and let's just call them the haters. They're not very polite. It's just full of vitriol. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? You see what these guys are saying and doing. They're slandering a minister of the Lord. He's trying to spread the love of the gospel to people. And, uh, and they're insulting him in, in such interesting ways. They're very creative. You've got to give them that. And you can say, is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. And they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. You all in vain it, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I have thus, if I say I'm going to speak it, I'm going to say this. This is verse 15. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Don't give vent to that. Take it to prayer. Read this. Read Ecclesiastes 8. Because then he says, but when I thought how to understand this, see again, interpretation of a thing. To analyze it. It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God 
And then I discern their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. His sufferings bring us to him. The sufferings bring us to him. And that's how we can have compassion for people who are like, oh, the Lord doesn't know. You realize they're in. That's why we give him the gospel. That's the sword that tears down a stronghold. So my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. When we're hurting, this is a pattern. We, it's, it's, it's for real. There's truth in it. But we bring it to him. And we keep the context of it, of what's really going on. So I know we're late, but uh, I, I know this again is a, is a minority opinion in some cases with the earthly king, but God's radical sovereignty is a beautiful thing when you look at it from the overall, the comprehensive nature of God and his grace. Thanks, guys.